This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 3rd of September 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, the Russia analyst Stephen Diel will be joining me in the studio to unpack the weekend papers. Also ahead on today's programme, our editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck will be bringing us his weekend column, in which he unpacks the complex relationship between same-sex couples, tropical fruit, maiden aunts and Halifax. And then Andrew Muller will take a look at the week's weirder stories. We learned this week that maybe former US President Donald Trump should stop hiring lawyers who blue-tack their business cards to the inside of bus station phone booths. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. First, here's the headlines. Russia has scrapped today's deadline to resume gas flows via a major gas supply route to Germany, deepening Europe's difficulties in securing winter fuel. Gazprom, the state-controlled firm with a monopoly on Russian gas exports, did not give a new time frame. A magnitude 5.8 earthquake struck Greece today, the European Mediterranean Seismological Centre said. The quake's epicentre was Crete and was two kilometres below the Earth's surface. Mikhail Gorbachev, the last Soviet leader, was shocked and bewildered by the Ukraine conflict in the months before he died and psychologically crushed in recent years by Moscow's worsening ties with Kyiv, his interpreter said. Gorbachev will be buried today. President Vladimir Putin will not be attending the funeral because of his work schedule, the Kremlin says. And ground teams at Kennedy Space Center are preparing for a second try at launching NASA's towering next-generation moon rocket on its debut flight today, hoping to have remedied engineering problems that foiled the initial countdown five days earlier. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now I'm joined in the studio by the Russia analyst Stephen Diel. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning, Georgina. Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's pick up on some of those stories we're mentioning in our headlines because, of course, a lot of Russian stuff coming out there. Firstly, the whole uh, Nord Stream 1 row. Now, Russia's said that this is maintenance issues, that there's a fault that has to be rectified. Clearly, there's a little more to it than that. Absolutely. There, there are a number of uh, points in uh, today's Russia stories which just show um, that, that Russians can lie to your face with a completely honest-looking expression, and they don't care. And they know that you're lying, and you know that they know that you're lying, and so on. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, this is absolute nonsense. They, they said, for example, that um, contractors from the Siemens firm, the uh, engineering firm who are responsible, partially responsible for actually building the pipeline, that they were there at this point, and there was a leak, and therefore they had to see to it. And Siemens turned around and said... It works without the, whether you mend the leak or not, and the leak can just be mended on the spot. So, you know, even their lies, they don't care that they're so implausible. Um, and yes, this is exactly the weaponization of, of energy. Um, they are trying to turn the screw on European governments because they know that you know, we're, already into, we're already into September. Um, winter is coming, to quote. Uh, and there will be shortages of, of energy supplies, gas and, and probably oil uh, in the months ahead. And 
I said it before and I'll say it again, that European governments really need to say to their people, look, you know, this is the situation. Um, you know, we're not going to back down on our support for Ukraine. Um, Russia is doing this simply to try to stop us from supporting Ukraine. Um, uh, and, you know, you're going to have to put up with some hardship. Look at what the people of Ukraine yeah. are putting up with. It's, all it's far worse than any of us in Europe are um, facing. A couple of points there, though, Stephen. Firstly, Russia's hurting itself financially. And secondly, where does the gas go? Because it does have to be stored somewhere. It, it, it does. Uh, um, Russia hurting itself, that, that again, this is a very Russian thing to do. Um, there's a Russian fairy t- story about uh, the golden fish. If you catch the golden fish and it gives you wishes. And one version says that this man catches the golden fish and the golden fish says oh if you let me go uh, I'll give you a, a wish but I'll also give it to your neighbour and the man thinks for a bit and he says poke my eyes out <laughs> and and there is this thing in, in Russians and it comes up in Russian history again and again where Russians will do themselves harm because it's harming someone else it, it is quite extraordinary and this is a very very good example of that now as to where the gas goes um, yes the, the, it can be stored um, but otherwise they're simply going to flare it. They're going to set fire to it, just burn it off. Now, apart from being a really stupid thing to do and a waste of the gas, of course, have they heard about climate change? Have they heard about, you know, meeting norms? Um, it just sends more carbon into the air. It's, it's, you know, it, it, on all counts, it's just absurd. But unfortunately... This is Russia today. Mm. And of course, as we were also hearing in the headlines, uh, Gorbachev before his death was very upset by all of this. Now, he's being buried today. No show from Putin. That shows, if I've talked about certain characteristics of Russia, this shows a, a very particular characteristic of Vladimir Putin. And that is, he is a very, re- he, he may be intelligent, but he's a very resentful and very petty man. Um, if he had anything about him, he would have turned up at the funeral. I mean, and, and again, they've lied. They've said it's because of his schedule. Of course, it's, you know, you know he, any world leader would understand that, you know, you change your schedule to honour someone from the past, someone who actually did a huge amount for, not only for his own country, for world affairs. Mm. Um, those of us who lived through the, the, the Gorbachev period and just couldn't quite believe just how he was being he was welcoming the west uh, and 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 building trying to build a new country um whoever had tried to do what he did with the soviet union in such a mess in 1985 when he took over would have failed but he did his best yes he made mistakes we all make mistakes um but if it would say so much more about putin as a man if he'd actually said okay i'm changing the schedule i'm going to attend the funeral and the fact he's not attending the funeral and giving a mealy-mouthed pathetic liar of an excuse just shows how petty he is mm. although of course gorbachev did everything that putin has stood for has been trying to reverse what gorbachev did and also of course putin as we know extremely concerned about his own security if everybody knew he was going to be there at a certain time and place could his security be guaranteed i think Probably not. He's. I mean, he's done things like you know he flew to uh, to Tehran a few weeks ago for a meeting with uh, with Iranian and Turkish leaders, and everyone knew he was going to do that. Um, you know, the plane wasn't shot down. Uh, uh, um, so I think his personal security is pretty well guaranteed. Mm. You know, he this, the 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 number one word in his vocabulary is security in the sense of security services, secret service, uh, secret security, and so on. Um, so. I really don't think that that's that's a reason for for not turning up. Um, 
Uh, now, the New York Times today has a good piece on the progress of the war in, in Ukraine. What, what's it saying? It does. And <laughs> we were just saying before the programme, it, it always seems that um, when we do this programme on a Saturday, the, new, the newspapers that stand out for us are the New York Times and the Washington Post, and to a certain extent the Financial Times. But I wish that more British papers would take the lead from their American cousins. Uh, and there's an excellent article uh, starting on the front page, as so often with the New York Times going inside, uh, hardliners seethe as Putin avoids a draft. Because one other development this week was that Putin announced that um, he was going to increase the army by 10% starting in January. Um, that is a, a, it's a paper promise anyway, because um, <laughs> uh, where's he going to get the, people, the, the, the manpower from? That's one thing. Um, but the hardliners who actually, despite their rhetoric, realise that things are not going as well as they should do for the Russian forces and what's going on in the south in Ukraine with the counter-offensive by Ukrainians uh, to take back Kherson, which would be a major achievement if they can do that. Um, but the fact that the counter-offensive is taking place, it shows just how weak the Russian army is being. So, of course, what he continues to do is call it a special military operation. He and people who use the word war are being put in prison for calling it a war. Um, but... If he announces a, uh, a mass mobilisation and calls it a war, uh, then they may get more soldiers. But what he's afraid of is that it would cause mass discontent among the population. So keeping it at this level, um, and there's a very interesting quotation in that piece by the New York Times where um, the Dennis, uh, Denis Volkov, the director of what's called the Levada Centre, which is a... Um, uh, an opinion poll, an official opinion poll uh, organisation in, in Russia. He says, and I quote, that um, in March, 75%, when uh, our Russians asked, you know, what's, what's in the headlines, what's in the top of your mind, 75% said uh, the war in Ukraine, of course, they called it a special military operation. Uh, in July, when they asked the same question, only 32% of people did. So a lot of Russians are kind of, they pushed it out of their minds. And that suits Putin because, again, something I have said many, many times, but what frightens Putin most of all is not NATO, is not Ukraine. It's a, a, an uprising from below, what Russians call bunt. And what he is afraid of, and, you know, Putin does have fear, and he's afraid that if he calls a mass mobilisation, if he calls it a war, then there's going to be mass discontent. You know, you've already got estimated casualties, dead and wounded, of 80,000 Russian soldiers. That's coming from um, uh, Western intelligence. Um, if you, and so you've got all those families across the country already who have lost a son or a brother or a father. Um, and... If he has mass mobilisation, they may have more soldiers sent in, but they're cannon fodder. Mm. The way the Russians are fighting is very reminiscent of, of some of the battles of the Second World War when Stalin just sent more and more men forward and didn't care if they got killed. Um, uh, and if that happens, th that really could spread mass discontent through Russia. So he, he is worried about that. And even though his hardliners are saying, yes, come on, you've got to do that because we've got to win this, um, it's interesting that he's holding back from that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing that this conflict has done 
done. It's sparked some great literature. Andrei Kirchhoff's new book is Diary of an Invasion. Very, very good book. Uh, and there's an event I just want to highlight for you. It's happening at the British Library this Wednesday, and it's an evening celebrating Ukrainian literature. It brings together organisations across the UK. Uh, it features enchanting readings and a chance to connect with the culture of Ukraine. It's a cooperation between the Berlin International Literature Festival, the Frankfurt Book Fair, German Penn Centre. Uh, and as I say, it will have all these wonderful readings. I'll be chairing the event and you can you can be there in person or in fact you can access it online from wherever you are in the world. So just uh, if you go to the British Library um, website, that will give you the details of exactly how to do that on Wednesday. Now, it's time to hear from our Editor-in-Chief, Andrew Tuck. Here he is with his weekly column. On Thursday, it was my colleague Sophie Grove's birthday and we took her for lunch at a restaurant near Monocle called Fisher's that serves classic Viennese fare and even looks like it's been airlifted in from Austria. Fisher's is part of a group of restaurants founded by the celebrated and much-loved restaurateurs Jeremy King and Chris Corbin, but which, earlier this year, was rather brutally taken over by its majority shareholder, the Minor Group. So, not so minor after all, it turned out. It was an ugly fight, and most people, I think, hoped that Corbyn and King would somehow triumph. Indeed, such is the loyalty that the two men inspire that when one of my lunch group heard where we were going, she asked, are we allowed to? Although as she carved her way through a schnitzel the size of Tyrol, it looked as though the question had, at least for now, been put to one side. But she is not the first person to ask whether it's okay to dine here. And for some, the former Corbyn and King empire is in effect canceled. My takeaway? I've been to Fisher's for years and while the management may have changed, many of the staff have not. So who should my loyalty be to? Mine have paid some 60 million pounds for the business and I'd hope that the founders are okay. So does it really help if diners then engineer a boycott that sees staff lose their jobs? Plus, it's one of the few places where the service in London doesn't suck. Because what's happened to the world of catering? Whoever you speak to, it feels like restaurants and bars are struggling to find good staff. And that's from New York to London to Sydney. These jobs may not always be the best paid, may be demanding, but is being a barista or waiter really so terrible? After university, while I was trying to find internships on magazines, I worked in a restaurant to pay my rent. I loved being a waiter. The restaurant had one chef, a fun woman who took me under her wing, even let me make some of the starters. Let's just say that it involved a microwave. Tips were then shared out at the end of the shift and customers' half-drunk bottles downed in the company of the owner. Nearly all of my contemporaries have similar tales. Some say that in London, Brexit is to blame for the shortage of staff. Others, that people only want jobs that allow them to work from home. But is it also that lots of people just don't like having conversations, being open and engaged with people they don't know? And it's not just a youth thing. Our addictions to our screens, to dealing with even close friends and family via the likes of WhatsApp, means that jobs that expose you to endless, spontaneous interaction just seem 
a bit uncomfortable for some people. So, where did this story really come from? Last weekend, we went to Mallorca and across the weekend, caught up with several sets of people we know who, by coincidence, were all staying on the island. On Saturday, we drove out towards the town of Poyensa to see Kate and Rob, who live in Australia but are travelling for three months. Are there any Aussies not in Europe this summer? And they were staying for a few days in a house rented by Kate's sister and brother-in-law. It's a house that's secreted away in a silent valley, a house filled with good art, which has acres of land. Bitter? I must have looked like someone had stuck a wedge of lemon under my lip. Over lunch, we got talking about learning languages, and Kate and Rob told me how they had been told off recently in their Italian classes, and that it was all my fault. Some years ago, they reminded me, I had told them about my aged aunt, who lived in Halifax, and how that one day, when my cousin had gone home to visit her, she had confided that two nice ladies have moved into the house next door. I think they might be avocados. My cousin, detecting some confusion, said, Do you mean lesbians? And my aunt had replied, I'm so sorry. I always get those two things muddled up because they both came to Halifax around the same time. Anyway, cut to a classroom in Sydney, and the teacher is asking people to introduce themselves in Italian. The two women next to Kate and Rob give their names, explaining that they are life partners and that they are both lawyers, or, as they say in perfect Italian, avocati. Kate and Rob admit they may have giggled. The teacher asks them what they found so amusing. But as we ate lunch, I explained that there was a small problem. I don't have an aunt in Halifax, and I also remember repeating this very story and explaining how my friend Kate had an aunt in Halifax. My partner then chipped in with how actually it was he who had told us both the story and that he had been told it by a famous actress during rehearsals for a play. And it wasn't Halifax, it was Dundee. Crikey, did this ever even happen? Or did they just have versions of this same story in every town and country around the world, with various fruit and vegetables, no doubt, and gays and lesbians, switched in or out according to location? Let's just say that I'll be very alert to my Spanish neighbours telling tales about two papayas moving into the building. Thank you very much, Andrew. This is Monocle on Saturday, and we're going to talk about a complete fruitcake now. <laughs> <laughs> In Miami, this is, of course, Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago and the top secret documents that were found there by the FBI. Because, of course, now uh, the story has moved on and empty files marked classified have been found at uh, what's been known as the Winter White House. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, the FT, I quote, sort of saying that the inventory, which is completely uh, unsealed yesterday, shows agents retrieved 103 papers with classified marks, including 54 marks secret, 18 marks top secret, and 90 empty boxes that were classified or returned to staff secretary military aid. Um, this is uh, There's two things, I think, going on here. One is that Trump is basically um, being dishonest. Uh, and uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, I know that will come as a shock to listeners, but um, not only did he throw his toys out of the pram when um, uh, when he lost the election, couldn't accept it, um, but you know he he clearly it seems has deliberately taken some of these things. But but the other side of it is the the the, the 
total mix-up nature of it. As the Washington Post says, um, he intermingled classified and unclassified materials in boxes. Um, and then they go on to say, I love this, box number 25, for example, was found in Trump's storage room and contained 76 magazines and articles published in 2016 and 2017. Mixed in with those media clippings was one government document with a confidential classification marking and another with a secret classification marking, according to the inventory list. Um, so, you know, not only has he taken this stuff when he shouldn't have done, but he it, it, he doesn't even seem to appreciate its value. He's just thrown it in together with magazine articles. And as we know, he's, you know, he's such a narcissist that, you know, anything where uh, he is praised, he will have kept... Um, we had a whole magazine or, or, or an article, but it's just all thrown together with these secret documents. Mm. A couple of other pieces that have come up about this. Uh, the Times is talking about how Melania Trump felt violated and bought new underwear after FBI agents contaminated her bedroom while they were searching the former president's Florida house in Mar-a-Lago. Apparently she's a germaphobe. She doesn't even let Donald Trump into her rooms, they said. <laughs> <laughs> and the other was a one wonderful analysis and I just wish I could put my finger on it again but it was about how Trump has always had this fetish for paper and he's always surrounded by a lot of paper which he doesn't really look at but for him it's part of the trappings of power an important person always has a lot of paper around them. Absolutely you know it so reminds me of that scene in um, in Blazing Saddles going back a few years I know but if anyone hasn't seen it it may be old but it's still so funny um, and Mel Brooks the director who plays um, the, the the mayor of the town, and he's he's sitting there and he's just sort of signing things at his desk, and he's just going work 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 work, and that, that seemed, maybe that's where Trump got it from. That you know you give the impression of working hard by signing bits of paper or shuffling bits of paper, when in fact you're doing nothing useful at all. Absolutely, uh, I mean, there's so much coverage of this from so many different places. Uh, absolutely fascinating, and of course, a lot of it culminated in this wonderful speech from Joe Biden this week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, he, must be, he must be rubbing his hands with glee because surely, surely uh, this, this ought to signal the end of a, of a possible second term for, for Donald Trump. Um, of course, what he's done now, very cleverly, Trump, is you know, he's called a, um, a, a judicial review which is going to push the result of it beyond the, uh, the, the, the um, midterm elections. Um, in November. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, even though I sort of I sound hopeful, but it, it amazes me that there are still significant numbers, millions of people in America, who think that the sun shines out of his posterior. Um, you know, this man who is, who's a liar, uh, who's a misogynist, uh, who's just uh, totally narcissistic. Uh, it, it, it defies logic how mm. people can still support how how anyone how any woman can support him after what he's come out with in the past. Um, I, I find just staggering. Absolutely, uh, and of course, there's a lot of questions over his uh, legal advisers. I think Andrew Muller has more on that. We learned this week that maybe former US President Donald Trump should stop hiring lawyers who blue-tack their business cards to the inside of bus station phone booths. We learned that Trump's learned friends had asked for something or someone called a special master to review the documents recently removed from Trump's Florida home by the FBI. 
We swiftly learned that the US Department of Justice may have seen this one coming. With almost suspicious haste, the DOJ released a 36-page filing including photographs of some of what they found at Mar-a-Lago, i.e. a bunch of files that really do not look like the sort of thing a private citizen should have stuffed into his desk drawers, which is to say they were stamped with words like secret and top secret in writing so big even Donald Trump could have read it. Perhaps even Eric. In a nicely artful touch, the feds spread these out on the floor next to a box containing some of Trump's extensive collection of framed magazine covers featuring himself, which meant we also learned of the former president's absolutely ghastly taste in carpets. Seriously, it looks like something your shoes would stick to in a provincial Weatherspoons. But we've learned most of all, possibly, that Donald Trump is going to struggle to sweep all this under the rug, but we learned that the FBI may shortly have legal difficulties of their own. For we learned that the Bureau is being sued by Mickey Dolenz out of the monkeys, if you'd now like to cross that off your 21st century bingo card. 37. Settle down. Dolenz, the last surviving member of the group, remains curious to see the complete file the feds assembled on the I'm not your stepping stone hitmakers during the strange, perfervid years of the Vietnam War, when it was believed in certain paranoid circles that the Pleasant Valley Sunday songsmiths were dangerous subversives peddling drugs, hula hoops, chewing gum, and/or communism to the kids. Well, quite. We learned on looking into it further that the file was in fact released in 2011, but with lots of stuff redacted, and what Dolenz now seeks, we learned, is the unexpurgated version which will lay bare the complete extent of his group's treacherous depravity. We learned upon as reading as much of the file as is available that the already published evidence is damning enough. Our imagination boggles indeed at what horrors must lurk beneath the black sharpie ink if these findings by the FBI's diligent undercover agents are any indication, as will now be solemnly read by Monocle 24's Won't Someone Think of the Children desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The television show The Monkeys features four young men who dress as beatnik types. In concert, they used a screen set up behind the performers who played certain instruments and sang as a combo. During the concert, subliminal messages were depicted on the screen left-wing innovations of a political nature. We learned, however, that Mickey Dolenz clearly has better taste in lawyers than Donald Trump. Dolenz's attorney, Mark Zaid, gave as his reason for pursuing the case that he thought it would be, and we quote, fun. Elsewhere... Blazing on a sunny afternoon we learned that Montenegro's laziest man is, when roused, startlingly energetic. We learned, actually, we already knew this, but we're aiming for rhythmic consistency here, that the Balkan Republic stages an annual reclining and or reposing competition, a joke at its own expense. Among the nations of the former Yugoslavia, the stereotype of Montenegrins is that they tend towards the idol, as captured by such local gags as the following. What is the Montenegrin record for the 100 metres? 70 metres. Here all week. Or as the Montenegrin comedian might have had it, here till Tuesday lunchtime. 
See, that would have been funnier, certainly more in keeping with the bit, if you'd just done the rim shot without the cymbal crash, as if you simply couldn't be bothered finishing it. There it is. Anyway, we learned that Montenegro's 12th annual lying down competition had been won by one Zarko Pijanovic, who racked up a solid 60 hours of inertia to claim the grand prize of 350 euros. This was short of the record of 117 hours set by Dubraka Aksic in 2021, but you can only beat what's in front of you. We then learned, however, that Mr. Pijanovic may be less relaxed than he appears. We learned that he had taken severe umbrage with the coverage of his accomplishment by one local newspaper, which instead of hailing him a national champion, declared him Montenegro's biggest deadbeat at which Mr. Pijanovic presented himself at the newspaper's offices and set vigorously about the fixtures and fittings until removed by police, as will be evoked by the ensuing soundscape. Still, say what you like, he wasn't going to take it lying down. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks to Andrew Muller. Just uh, possibly a red herring, but possibly true. Um, this name Pjanovic, the, 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 the laziest man or the longest lying down man in, in Montenegro, in Slav languages, piani means drunk. So oh. whether there is a play on words there, I don't know. Uh, right, Tory leadership. So we oh, have seen... Num, num, num. <laughs> we've seen the votes close. Uh, as we know, a very, very small proportion of people uh, are voting for the leaders. Uh, the votes closed on Friday. We'll actually know the results. I think it's Tuesday. Uh, Liz Truss looks uh, almost certain to beat Rishi Sunak. Uh, and uh, the um, bookies are certainly saying that um, very much. That's that's absolutely, we think, what's going to happen. Um, lots of coverage about this, obviously. I particularly liked the protesters that glued themselves uh, to the Speaker's chair in Parliament saying we need a general election because don't we? Well, uh, yes, we do. I think the majority of the population, if you, if you ask the, the population of Britain, do we need a general election? I think you'd find that, a, if not a, a majority, then certainly a large number would say yes, certainly a lot larger than the 0.03% of the population who have voted for this new Tory leader uh, because it's only members of the Conservative Party, um, otherwise known as the Blue Rince Brigade or um, uh, Colonel Blimp from Kent or whatever. That, mm. I mean, um, it, it's... It, it, what, what, but what's really actually... I mean, that's the, all the jokey side, but what's really serious about this is that... First of all, you know, Johnson said, oh, you know, I, I'm stepping down, but I'll go when we have someone else. And then they have this ridiculously long, weeks and weeks and weeks, this process of, of um, finding a new leader. In the meantime, and this is still the summer, so God knows what's going to happen when things get colder and the energy bills go up even higher. You know, there, there have been, there have been um, uh, strikes on the trains, there have been strikes of the dustbin workers, there's been um, the energy prices rising and so on. There's been serious issues in the country and yes parliament's been on holiday but the government's not supposed to go on holiday yes they can have individual holidays but they're the government they're supposed to be in charge of the country they have done nothing this summer to try and alleviate some of the problems that ordinary people are facing um, and the fear is that 
whichever of them takes over, and yes, as you were saying, it will probably be Liz Truss. Well, I mean, if you listen, if you can take it to actually to listen to some of the things she's saying, she talks such nonsense and makes such promises that she's never going to be able to fulfil. And there really is a, a serious feeling in the country that this party is totally out of touch with the population, with, we're totally out of touch with reality. And when they talk about, you know, well, we need to do more, so much hasn't been done, and, and they've been in power for 12 years, for goodness sake. Um, they, you know, they, they don't seem to realise they're blaming themselves when they say, oh, well, this hasn't been done. Well, yeah, well, where were you? And what we're really hoping, of course, is that a lot of work has been done behind the scenes and that whenever who takes over uh, comes into office, which I actually got it wrong. I said Tuesday, it, it will be around it will be lunchtime on Monday that the results are announced. Uh, the handover takes place on Tuesday. Um, yeah, well, of course, you, I mean, you couldn't expect them to spoil their weekend by actually sitting down and counting the votes thoroughly. <laughs> I mean, they might have started yesterday evening, but I mean, give them until Monday morning, you know, please. Uh, the, the problem is this huge, huge cost of living crisis yeah. here in the UK. And uh, I mean, the strikes are just part of it and one can completely understand why people are going on strike uh, and of course the next big test will come for the Labour Party Keir Starmer and his support of these strikes. Yes, I mean that, that is, is um, the other side of the coin and also rather worrying that um, you know, is there an opposition that is actually poised to take over? Um, my view is they're not ready anyway and what would they do and they haven't really said a great deal um, you know they've said oh well you know that's up to the people in power you know when we take over um, so if there, if there were to be a, an early general election and there is a feeling that um, bottom stuck to speakers chairs and so on or not that there will be pressure across the country for an early general election because it's not supposed to take place until 2024 mm. in fact December 2024 um, so the chances of it happening, say, next year, I, th I think are quite high. But there'll be a lot of uh, people looking at and a lot of pressure on the Labour Party to say, well, get your act together and actually have a proper manifesto, which you then stick to, to try and get us out of this mess. Yeah, and of course, a lot of speculative articles saying that uh, as soon as Truss is in, there'll be a vote of no confidence and Johnson will come back. <laughs> <laughs> Let's Heaven leave it there. Is. It just doesn't uh, bear contemplation. <laughs> Stephen DL, thank you so much for joining us here on this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. And of course, the programme returns at the same time next week. And tomorrow's edition of Monocle on Sunday, uh, which airs at 9am London time, will be hosted by Emma. Nelson. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.